Okay, you guys are absolutely going to love this episode. We have Dr. Rick Madsen, who is the OG of shoulder. I mean, he tells this incredible story that he uh, did his fellowship uh, with Dr. Near, lived in Dr. Near's house for three months with his wife. And the only way that you could use the Near prosthesis back in that day was if you came and did a fellowship and met with him. So it's Charlie Rockwood. I mean, you, the names that he's throwing out are just absolutely unbelievable and literally helped to create the specialty of shoulder. He was the founding member of the ASCS, the past president of the ASCS. Of course, there's this little book called uh, Rockwood and Madsen, The Shoulder, uh, which is now in its sixth edition of printing over 50 years. I mean, it's just unbelievable. He is incredibly sharp. He's still taking care of patients and operating at the age of 79, has an incredible blog that he's using. He's he's basically reimagined himself and has put himself into the digital space. Unbelievable story. You're going to love every second of it. Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro. From Medical Media, this is The Ortho Show. Hello world, Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of the Ortho Show podcast, where everyone knows we bring you the best of the best in orthopedics. We're super excited about our YouTube channel now, so you can see us as well as listen to us in all places you listen to podcasts. Today is going to be an exceptionally special episode. Uh, we're very pleased that we can bring on Dr. Rick Matson, who is a professor of orthopedic surgery at the University of Washington School of Medicine. He is literally one of the original founders of the concept of the shoulder specialty within orthopedic surgery. And, uh, you know, Dr. Matson, what a pleasure it is to have you on the show. Thank you for inviting me, Scott. Oh, it is my pleasure. So listen, uh, you know, we always start at the beginning. We want to know the story of your life. And so where did you, you, I guess you were born in Austin, Texas. You're a Texas guy. You spent a lot of time there. But where did the idea of becoming a doctor come from you? Was that early on? Is it family? Where did that come from? I'm going to tell you an embarrassing story, but uh, I was, um, I, I, I lived in Austin. Uh, my dad was a professor of physical chemistry at the University of Texas. It took me to the Texas Longhorn Games and marched in the band and all that sort of stuff. And I started dating this gal. And uh, my dad got concerned that I was uh, a little too sweet on her. That was his words. And that this may lead to a uh, sort of a detraction from the academic career that he had set me on. And so <laughs> I was uh, at the end of nearing the end of my third year at the University of Texas. And he said, guess what? I found out that you have met all the prerequisites for going to medical school. And you, my friend, are going to medical school next year at Baylor. So he had somehow engineered this. Um, and so I got... Uh, I got expatriated to from Austin to Houston uh, and uh, went to medical school there, had a great time and ended up marrying the girl anyway. <laughs> and, you know, you know, Steve, Steve Snyder tells such an exact similar story. It's so funny uh, about how his father-in-law tried to chase him away. But yet at the end of the day, he still succeeded and married the girl of his dreams. So so that's that. So are you the first doctor in the family then? I'm the first physician. My dad was a Ph.D., but yeah, his, yes. his dad was a barber from Denmark, 
um, appropriate origins from surgery, right? Because those were the original surgeons. 100%. And so uh, he was a Danish immigrant uh, and his my grandma was uh, a seamstress and they came from Denmark in 1918. And my dad was born in Racine, Wisconsin, moved down to Texas and became a, a physical chemist there. Yeah, fantastic immigrant story, which again, we hear so much of. So I have to ask you, were you on the field with Matthew McConaughey for the Texas uh, game win that they had over Alabama this past weekend? No, but I was on the field a lot with the Daryl Royal back in those days. And That's uh, awesome. you would have really liked this uh, whole Texas football scene because the the 100-piece uh, Longhorn marching band would march down Congress Avenue in Austin to the shores of Town Lake, where there would be this huge bonfire, and they would have the mascot of the opposing team, let's say the Texas Aggies, um, on top of this bonfire. Darrell Royal would say, fans, this is going to be a tough game, unless you guys all come and stand on your feet for the entire game and scream your heads off, we're going to have trouble. Are you going to be there for me? And the whole crowd would just go nuts. And then they light the bonfire. And then um, you can only imagine the uh, libations that followed. But uh, it was a pretty wild scene. Yeah, I don't think I don't think there's much that's changed in college football down in Texas. I think that they're still trying to rile them up and have a great time. And what a spectacle it is and what a pleasure it is to watch. All right. So all right. So let's get to, let's get back to medicine. That was a great story. But all right. So you're off to Baylor. Uh, you, you know, to get to get your medical degree. When did orthopedics come into play for you that you knew that that's the specialty for you? Well, that's another crazy story because I went to uh, Hopkins as an intern and then I was going to the NIH uh, for two years. This was during the Vietnam War. And so one of the ways that you could avoid being um, conscripted was to join the public health service. So I was able to get a position at the National Institutes of Health in my chosen field, which was neurosurgery. And so for two years, I did neurosurgery at the NIH, and we dealt with intractable pain, intractable epilepsy, intractable brain tumors, intractable movement disorders, and untreatable spinal cord AVMs. And after two years of that, I got progressively disenchanted with that field. And so one night um, while I was developing photographs in my... Um, bathroom at uh, there in Bethesda, I just decided I could not hack it in neurosurgery. And uh, so I decided I would abdicate and um, look around for another specialty. So I did what you would do. I asked the anesthesiologists, who are the happiest surgical specialists? And they said, <laughs> that's easy. They're orthopedic surgeons. I'd never had a Baylor. I never had an orthopedic rotation or anything. But I decided wow. I, would, I would apply for orthopedic programs. And one of the benefits of being out there at um, in Bethesda is I got a chance to get introduced to rock climbing and whitewater boating and all that sort of stuff. So I applied only to programs that had those things nearby and wound up here at the University of Washington. Wonderful story. So amazing. So neurosurgeon to finally figuring out the cool guys or the, or the orthopedic surgeons. You make the transition. You head out to University of Washington where, where you do your residency. Um, and, you know, it's an interesting time, right? You're in your residency in the 70s. Um, orthopedics, you know, is not even necessarily being done by orthopedic surgeons out in the community, right? A lot of general surgeons were 
pinning hips and taking care of fractures. We hadn't really developed this, this great program. So what sparked your interest while you were in residency? Obviously, you know, we know where you wound up, which is the shoulder, but um, what was happening back then? What, what was the, what was happening in residency and how did you decide on the subspecialty that you were going to train in? Well, you're so right because uh, there were most orthopedic academic programs were under the umbrella of general surgery. So we had an iron handed Henry Harkins who of general surgery that was ruling the roost. And it was during my tenure uh, as a resident that DK Clawson took our department from being a division to being a, a department, which was a huge step forward and one of the earlier departments to make that transition. And so on completion of my residency um, in about 1975, he asked if I'd like to stay on in the faculty. And I said, great. Um, and uh, he said, you know, I, I, I sent Sigvard T. Hansen over to Germany to learn how to do IM nailing. I'd like to send you back to um, New York to learn from Dr. Charles Near about uh, how to do shoulder surgery because no one around here knows anything about shoulders. So he was, D.K. Clawson was that kind of guy who was always mentoring people. And um, and as a result of that, I went to spend some time with Charles Near. Uh, my wife came with me and actually Charles Near put me up in his house for three months. Can you imagine that? Uh, and uh, And my daughter, Susanna, who's now a breast surgeon in Philadelphia, came along with us uh, and we were hosted royally by Dr. Near in his house. So I had sort of a total immersion near experience. And that was, wow. one of the, there were at that time, there were no, there were no such things, Scott, as shoulder fellowships or any of that sort of stuff. This was just sort of a little, a little um, sideline thing that he organized for people that, that near organized for people who he thought might be successful in shoulder surgery. It didn't, it didn't exist. I mean, the, the idea of like a, somebody that would only specialize in the shoulder within orthopedics in the, in the late seventies. I mean, perhaps was it maybe Charlie Rockwood down in, in San Antonio was, was up and running at that time as well. Or no, he wasn't up and running. He was in the same position as I was essentially because he went and spent time with Charlie near. Um, and uh, so he, he and Bob Cofield and uh, Russ Warren and all those guys, Louis Biliani all spent time with Charlie Near, and um, we were sort of the the first uh, chickens out of the nest. Um, uh, and Near was interesting; he would only allow people to use his shoulder implants if they had spent time with him. So he didn't he didn't care anything about royalties, but he cared a lot cared a lot about control of people who were gonna use his implants because the last thing he wanted was people to get bad results with a near arthroplasty. So um, you had to be schooled by him and the company would not sell their stuff to you unless you had Charlie's imprimatur. That's absolutely phenomenal. And the names that you just rolled off your tongue, you know, are just such, you know, iconic leaders within, within orthopedics and and shoulders of what at the absolute infancy of, of this specialty and what a pleasure it is to sort of hear that very unique story so you go 
you know, you're so Bill Levine's a dear friend of mine, you know, you know, so Bill, you're going to have to start putting your traveling fellows in the house. I mean, there is precedent at this point as well, but what a wonderful experience to live with Dr. Neer and live, eat and breathe shoulder and understand. And then you head back to University of Washington to establish a shoulder, a shoulder uh, position and faculty and, and a division, if you will. And where did it go from there? So um, again, Dr. Clausen was still the chairman, and um, and he said, you know, what we want you to do is to become a triple threat in sh the shoulder world. So that means practice and research and teaching. And I want to, I want to see some articles. I want to see some good clinical results, and I want to see residents that feel like they know something about the shoulder. So um, he. He just wound me up and put me on the ground and let me take off. And he was, uh, he was a, an incredible guy, Scott, because he, once he sort of wound you up and put you on the ground, he didn't mess with you after that. He just let you do your thing, just like he did with, with Hanson in the I am nail. Um, and uh, he was very, um, very nurturing. I mean, he would try to knock down obstacles in front of us, but would not try to tell you to turn left or right. He said, just do your thing. And so, so to be clear, when you came back and you set up and he gave you the reins, which is wonderful, another great story, um, was it just shoulder at that point where you were, were like, okay, this is what I'm going to focus on. I can do knee, I can do shoulder replacements. I, I have the blessing of Dr. Near. We've got rotator cuffs. We have instability. But did your practice 100% focus on shoulder as it was developing? No, absolutely not, because there just wasn't enough of it. And so I was doing... Uh, probably like what many people do. I mean, I started out as a general orthopedic surgeon. I was doing backs. I was doing feet. I was doing hands, um, uh, you know, discectomies and all that sort of stuff back in the day. And then gradually, um, I dropped out of peds. I dropped out of foot. I dropped out of hip and knee uh, and, um, and sort of wound up with shoulder and elbow. And um, that's sort of where it's where it stood but it, it was as the as the shoulder and elbow practice developed i was able to discard the other specialties to people who knew more about them than i did so you're let's let's talk about that so you're a founding member of the american shoulder and elbow society when did that uh society get started oh you're gonna embarrass me now i don't think I, i'll have to tell you later well, what the exact date was but it was well, not you you were the president in 1990 if i'm not mistaken is that correct yeah. i think that and was, that your was year. Yeah, so that was the tenth anniversary. I do remember that. Yeah. So, uh, so because uh, I remember we we hosted the meeting out here, and we had a wonderful um, uh, salmon dinner over at Blake Island, and then I took everybody to the space uh, to the Air and Space Museum out here, um, where we got a chance to walk around every possible airplane in the world, and had a really nice dinner out there, and uh, we had. All the people that you can imagine were there, um, in, including the original generation, but a whole 10 years of subsequent uh, uh, shining stars of uh, shoulder surgery. You know, it's interesting. We had Javier uh, Duralde on, who, as you know, is the immediate past president, uh, private practice, shoulder specialist, another wonderful shoulder specialist from Atlanta. 
Uh, and he recalls the day in which he was accepted into the ASES. And he said it was one of the most, you know, one, the most proud moments of his life. You know, we had to make sure he remembered about his kids and his wife. But, you know, <laughs> at the end of the day, he was like, I'm sitting in this room. There were 200 shoulder specialists, you know, from around the world and and who were just the tops at their game. And it was just remarkable. Nowadays, there's a lot more members. But back in the day, it was a pretty exclusive club. I mean, you had to really prove your worth to be able to get in. Actually, it's interesting because um, uh, it didn't start out as the ASES. It just started out as a group of um, of uh, near um, acolytes, if you will. Um, and sure. he would have a meeting, you know, at the academy. We'd all get together, and he'd have meetings uh, in New York at the Waldorf Astoria, and we'd sit around and eat and talk about shoulder stuff. But it wasn't a formal society. It was just a just a small number of people that were that did that sort of thing. And we would argue about how to manage this and that. And uh, he would sort of rule the roost, as you can imagine. Um, and it was after that had sort of percolated for several years. And people said, well, maybe we ought to formalize this as, as a society. And Bob Cofield was very instrumental in sort of crafting, as he is very good at, um, sort of the organization and the bylaws and all that sort of thing. So Dr. Neer was, of course, the first president and um, ASCS. And I was one of the people that argued um, for keeping it small because I thought that if you kept the society small, people could say what they wanted and still be friends. And it wasn't trying to show off for anybody, you know, you and I and and 20 of our favorite friends are sitting around a table and we just talk about what's important. And uh, that's the way I think ideas can be hammered out. Now it's gotten to be huge. I mean, it's a mini academy now. Um, yeah. uh, but I, my vision, I have to confess, was keep it small. Uh, I think the Hip Society for a while was like that. You may know more, but you know there was something about just have a limited number of members and people really had to had to work hard to to make it into the group and that kept it from having people that were sort of casually associated with the shoulder involved yeah great story and well i mean look the specialty has grown i mean there's just so many more orthopedic surgeons now and you know some guys only work i i joke around you know i say i'm a healer of knees and shoulders left and right you know is it going to get to the point where we're only doing the left side i mean who knows but you know truly a wonderful story about the origins of of the american children elbow society as well so let's talk about another thing which you know you know we were talking about 1990 so 1990 for me uh i was graduating medical school and going into internship and i remember my red two volume with a black sort of emblem in the middle, Rockwood and Matson, the shoulder, right? That was the Bible, you know, if you will, for residents and people in training within orthopedics to sort of understand and, and get to know what the shoulder is all about. So when did you and Charlie Rockwood get together and say, you know, let's build this thing? Yeah, that book is now in its sixth edition. Can you imagine that? Amazing. Um, so uh, one of the things that Charlie, so the, Charlie Rockwood, that's a whole different branch of the tree, right? So Charlie Rockwood um, got to know me through these little meetings with uh, the near group. And he was uh, president of the academy. So he said, you know, I think we're going to organize some travel courses. 
it's, we might as well have some fun. So we're going to go to Acapulco. And so we, we go to Acapulco and put on a shoulder course in Acapulco. And uh, that gave us plenty of time to sit around and drink a little and talk a lot or the other way around. And, um, and he's the first thing he said, he says, I think that we can, it's going to sound heretical. He says, I think we can come up with a better shoulder prosthesis than the near. So um, if this sounds like a two brute, uh, <laughs> there it is. But anyway, it's <laughs> like a big deal, right? <laughs> so, so, um, you know, it's the usual back of a napkin sort of thing. And we said, well, you know, the the glenoid could be improved by putting pegs on it rather than having a keel. And, you know, the, the, the humeral implant should be modular and um, blah, blah, blah. So um, then we sketched this out and he took the napkin to uh, um, a guy by the name of Jeff Andrela, who is a wonderful engineer. And um, Jeff sort of, made it happen through um through depew and so that was sort of the beginning of our more than casual relationship and then he said you know i don't know how well you knew him but uh, he had this funny way he would sort of do this and he said you know i think we ought to write a book i don't like any of the shoulder texts that are out there would would you be willing to do it with me and i said of course and um so we sort of divided the laborers. He was the guy that sort of picked the authors and whipped them into shape. I mean, if, if you were late on your chapter, you're going to get a phone call like every week. Scott, where is your chapter? And I had the job of sort of editing all this stuff. So his job was to get it in the door. My, do my job was to get it out the door in reasonable fashion so that was our divided labor and um but he was wonderful to work with uh because he had skills that i wasn't even close to having and i was able to help a little bit with the, the writing side of things so that, now, that was, he, that's where that happened what that's just an amazing story again i mean it's just uh it's just something that you know you take for granted that you had this amazing textbook that's been around forever but somebody had to start it uh and here you are i mean i have to ask you know how old are you? How old are you, Rick? We need to know. I'm 79 now, and yeah, uh, I mean, still, you're still sharp working. As tack. <laughs> still you're working. working. You're sharp as a tack. I mean, it's like you know, as a general rule, they say pediatricians, you know, don't retire; they die. You know, most orthopedic surgeons you know, decide to retire at one point or another. But man, you're you're all over this, and uh, it has to be very gratifying for you to know that. You know, that book's been around for, for 40 years at this point, 50 years, sixth edition, the things that you were dealing with and, and thinking about early on before anybody even knew what the shoulder was are now still being taught uh, and recognized by by leaders in their field, you know, decades and generations later. That's fun. Pretty cool. Rockwood, I, you, you probably know this about Rockwood, but Rockwood was a book writer. And the, the way he got... Um, the admiration of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons is he wrote this book on emergent care of the sick and injured, which was the first a AOS publication. And that got this all the AOS literature stuff. And then he did, uh, he, he wrote a book with uh, David Green. Um, Rockwood and Green, the classic Rockwood book for fractures. I mean, yes. it's unbelievable. So, I mean, he... <laughs> 
He was a he was like Lawson or like near. I mean, he was a real visionary and could sort of see a path. And he was he was good at being sort of on the path before anybody else was. I mean, he could sort of see what was coming. And yeah, pioneers are they're a rare breed, right? To be able to see around corners and identify things and 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 in a way that really hasn't been seen before. You know, look, you have incredible, you know, knowledge here, Dr. Madsen. So I want to, I want to pick your brain a little bit um, for our listeners, and we're going to keep it pretty basic. But I'm going to ask you two questions. The first question I'm going to ask you is, what's wrong with orthopedics today? I know you have a blog. Uh, you're staying very much interested in arthroplasty in the shoulder. About and there are so many new ways to do arthroplasty of the shoulder. It's remarkable as we started back from the near prosthesis, which was two sizes, you know, amazing what we can do these days. But so I know you're keeping abreast of all this. What do you see that's wrong with what we're doing in orthopedics today? Well, let me still say that orthopedics is still the best job in the world. You know, that's, I got into it because the anesthesiologist said the orthopedic surgeons were the happiest. And I still think that that's right. I mean, if you look around, very few of us are moping around saying, you know, I'm tired of practice. I'm going to go do something else. And um, uh, as a result, the aging orthopedic surgeon has become a big topic. And here I am. So, but I, I, I wouldn't say that anything is wrong, but I think that there are things that we can do better. And I think that one of the things that is um, important to recognize is the relationship between industry and practice. And um, and trying to recognize, not get rid of, but trying to recognize the influences of each on the other. Uh, and I think that this is something that's um, it's really important because, as you know, 99% of orthopedic surgeons have industrial relationships, and that's appropriate. But I think that uh, probably we could do a better job of acknowledging that in presentations so that the readers and the listeners could say, I'm talking about say the, the subacromial balloon catheter and in the limitations section of my paper, rather than saying, I've got disclosures that you can go hunt around with about three clicks, you can find out, just put it in the paper that one of the limitations of this paper is that the authors um, get um royalties or what speakers uh, fees from striker or whatever um and because i think that people deserve to know um you know there was there's a current supreme court justice who is getting money that may or may not be appropriate it would have been a lot nicer if that had been stated up front rather than discovered and i just think people have the should have the opportunity to know that as they read the article, because then they can understand it a little bit better. I mean, everybody understands innovation. Everybody under wants it because that's what makes us better. But I, I would say that if I could, that would be one of the things that I'd tweak about the system is make that part of the limitation section of a paper on my new shoulder prosthesis or my new widget or whatever. Yeah, I mean, look, you were part of, I mean, you worked with the Pew to come up with a shoulder replacement. So, I mean, you can't develop new products as as a lead physician, as a, 
um, you know, without having industry, unless you got your own bankroll in some machine shop in the backyard to be able to do this. So you have to work. So I, you know, I think that's actually wonderful. I mean, better transparency in industry physician relationships, but don't stop it, right? Don't stop right. the progression innovation. Just be more transparent about what your relationships are. So when people read the paper, there, there's an internal bias uh, and be able to just understand that and take it for what it's worth. I think that's uh, that's very sound. All right, I'm going to ask you another question. What do you really like about orthopedics right now? Everything. Um, what I like is the opportunity to um, ask good questions and try to get good answers. And, um, you know, you made the comment about bias. I like to be transparent about bias. I mean, there's people, when they write papers, they talk about selection bias as being a bad thing. It's a good thing. So, Scott uses selection bias when he decides who to operate on. That's what you're supposed to do. I mean, I, you shouldn't be operating on people that aren't going to do well. So I think selection bias is just what we ought to be doing. And we ought to be selective. And we ought to, again, admit that. And um, I think when we, um, what we're trying to do here, and I think most orthopedic surgeons are trying to do, is to make sure that we put our efforts in a direction that's going to benefit patients and recognize that just because somebody has arthritis doesn't mean they have to have a joint replacement um, because some people are going to do better, all things considered, with non-operative management just because they're not great candidates for surgical reconstruction. And uh, so what I think is good about it is that it's still a rapidly developing field. I think we're getting better at doing research, we're getting better at teaching, and we're getting better at um, taking care of our patients. And we're, we're learning together. And I think that's the great thing. And there's so many venues for sharing information. And uh, it's, it's just a terrific place to be, which is why I'm not, I'm going to hop till I drop as far as the practice is concerned. <laughs> it's just, it's just too much fun. And I, you're going to, it's going to sound silly, but I get up every morning saying, I'm so happy to be doing what I'm doing. And I can't wait to get to my desk and write or get to the clinic and see patients or go to the OR. I'm still jazzed about it. Uh, there's nothing better than waking up in the morning and being really excited about what you do. You know, this is what I love about the ortho show, you know, Rick, we just bring on some of the most, you know, remarkable, unique individuals. They happen to be orthopedic surgeons, but they're making huge contributions on the planet for patients and education. And, you know, one word comes to mind for, you know, first and foremost for you, which is wisdom uh, and experience. But I also have a great sense of humility that I sense from you in, in your in your purpose. We, we want to thank you for, you know, being one of the original founders of the specialty of shoulder. And it's really quite amazing where it's taken us to this day and certainly could not have started without you and your in, in really incredible you know contribution as well as to education and the papers that you write and the fact that you are still working and operating at the age of 79 and you are sharp as a tack i mean it has just been a very refreshing episode and we're so thrilled that you took the time out of your day to spend some some time to share your story with us i really enjoyed it and um i really enjoyed meeting you um and uh i'm just really appreciative of what you do trying to spread the word and um, show people that are happy doing what they're doing. Uh, because again, 
there are a lot of people that are considering careers uh, and uh, making a lot of choices, but I still think this is the best one ever. And I'm proud that I've got a daughter who's uh, one of the major hip and knee surgeons here in this small town of ours and uh, doing a great job. And she, she loves her job and she, she loves her life. And uh, it's just another example of uh, people enjoying this specialty. What an absolute pleasure it's been to have you on, Dr. Madsen. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the Ortho Show. Till next time.